Our sermon passage this morning uh, picks up right where we left off last week, Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. Philippians 4, 4 to 7. Our scripture reading, which we will read first, comes from Revelation chapter 19. And uh, your bulletin says it's verses 6 to 8, uh, but your bulletin is wrong. <laughs> we begin reading at verse 1 and read through verse 8. I think this will give us a, a bigger picture uh, of what is taking place in heaven for those who have gone on to be with the Lord, what we will enjoy when we go to be with the Lord in heaven or when Christ Jesus returns. So Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 to 8 is our scripture reading. Our sermon passage is Philippians 4, 4 to 7. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. This is the Lord speaking to you. So please give ear unto it. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the the earth with her immorality. And He has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Now turning, if you will, to Philippians 4, verses 4 to 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. And He... he, I apologize... Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This ends the reading of God's Word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, once again we give thanks to you that we have your word, we have it in written form. It is your revelation of yourself to us. We thank you, dear Lord, that you have preserved it down through the ages, that you've put it down in permanent form. We thank you that the word of the Lord stands forever. It does not change. It doesn't shift with the sands of time. Lord, we thank you that it reflects who you are. You are not whimsical nor capricious. You are our rock and our fortress. You never change. We're grateful to you for that. Lord, in your word, this portion of it that we have read this morning, you give us commands. You have commanded us to do certain things and not to do other things, dear Lord. We admit, Lord, that when we are confronted with your commandments, we, we tremble. 
We struggle with them. We don't want to disappoint, but we know that we will. Lord, we pray that your word in general, but specifically your word this morning, that it would teach us to be obedient. We pray that it would teach us to be grateful and out of that gratitude to obey. We pray that your word would teach us that even when we don't obey, even when we fall far short of what you require of us, that there is one, the Lord Jesus, who did obey. And his obedience is counted as our own if we believe in him. So please bless us now, O Lord, as we hear your word preached. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now after last week's sermon passage, in which Paul pleads with Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord, which he gives them a commandment there to agree in the Lord, he now gives a series of commands to the entire congregation at Philippi, and of course by extension to us. Now, we've mentioned this before. It was quite customary for Paul's letters uh, to be sent to a specific church and then uh, copied by scribes and then distributed to the other churches in the area and then, of course, to be distributed uh, throughout the region. And as we know now, his letters, along with the rest of God's word, has been distributed all around the world, nearly to every tribe and tongue. And so the commandments that Paul gives to this specific congregation, just as those commandments he gave to those two specific women that we read about last week, uh, these commandments are for us as well. And Paul was in full cognizance of this fact. Now in these four verses, in the first three of these four verses, Paul gives five commands. Although we have to admit that, the, that, that one of those commands, rejoice, is repeated. We have it there twice in verse 4. And so Paul commands the Philippians to rejoice. He commands them to let their reasonableness or gentleness be known. He commands them not to be anxious about anything. And he commands them to let their requests be made known to God. These are commands. These are imperatives. These are things that we as believers in Jesus Christ must do. And of those, the only one that doesn't seem almost impossible to obey is letting our requests be made known to God. We have a difficult time rejoicing. Our lives aren't often marked by gentleness. We struggle with anxiety. And let's face it, if we're really being honest, we aren't all that great about letting our supplications be known to the Lord either. Now, it's hard to know whether we could say the same about the original recipients of Paul's letter, the church at Philippi, but they suffered from the same human condition that we do, so they may well also have felt helpless in the face of these commands. And so if you're feeling a bit helpless, if you're, if you're feeling a bit of a burden, having been placed on your shoulders in the reading of God's word, you're not alone. This burden, this feeling of weight has, has been there for centuries, for millennia. And so was Paul simply setting up the Philippian believers for failure by issuing these seemingly impossible to keep commands? Does God simply give commands to people for the purpose of crushing them under the weight of their failure to obey them? Well, the short answer is, of course not. And I think we all know that short answer. We all at least ostensibly, we, we, we believe it. Although there are times in our lives where we think that God is deliberately pressing us down under his thumb. 
God doesn't set us up for failure, giving us commands that we could have no hope of obeying. Of course he doesn't do these things. But while that may satisfy some people, I suspect that a person who is in mourning over the death of a loved one might find it difficult to rejoice in the Lord always. The person who suffers from extreme anxiety might find the command uh, not to, or to be anxious about nothing, they might find that command to be a weight that they cannot bear. But this passage offers to us more than just that trite answer, of course not. So let's dig in. Put on your aprons, get ready. We're going to, we're going to feast at the Lord's buffet. We're going to find the hope that we are all searching for. Paul's command to rejoice in the Lord is not the first time that Paul tells the Philippians that they should rejoice. This this letter has been described as as the letter of rejoicing, that Paul is the rejoicing apostle. Back in chapter 2, verse 17, when he mentions the fact that he may be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of their faith, meaning he might be executed at any time, he says that he is glad and that he rejoices with them all. Now, Paul here is not trying to set himself up as a super apostle, but he is he's using himself as an example in a sense. He's saying, I rejoice, even if I'm about to be poured out, if my life is going to be spilled, my blood is going to be spilled, my life is going to be taken, I rejoice. And then he tells them in verse 18 of chapter 2, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, in that instance, when he tells them that they should rejoice, he didn't give them a command. The verb isn't in the imperative mood. He says, you ought to rejoice. You should rejoice. But in chapter 3, verse 1, not too many verses later, he does command them for the first time to rejoice. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Now, now some of you may say, like, what, what does it mean? How does Paul, and really how does God ultimately, how can he command us to rejoice? It's kind of like in the military. Some of you, are, some of you work for the government. You know, there's, there's mandatory fun. There are, there are fun days. You've got to get out and do these things, and, and, and the government has the right to compel you to have fun. Well, who can tell me to have fun? And that's maybe for some of you the, the way that this feels a little bit. How can God tell me? How can he command me to rejoice? When our passage, however, our passage, he commands the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord, not once, not on occasion, always. Sinclair Ferguson describes this as a command for ongoing and permanently renewed joy. Talk about mandatory fun. And Paul repeats the command to rejoice. It doesn't just say rejoice in the Lord always. He says, again, I will say it to you, rejoice. He wants to make sure that the Philippians hear what he is saying. He doesn't want them just to kind of uh, brush it off and say, oh, that doesn't apply to me. But as you have probably experienced, circumstances in life can make the thought of rejoicing in the Lord a challenging one, even for a short period of time, much less all the time. Sometimes you just don't feel like rejoicing, do you? Sometimes your mood strips you of all joy. And part of the problem resides just in that fact. It resides in the fact that we have a lack of joy. It resides in the belief that we can only rejoice when we feel like rejoicing, when the Spirit moves us. Or in order to rejoice, we've got to 
gin ourselves up into an emotional state that's conducive to rejoicing. But joy ought not to be dependent upon our feelings. Yes, joy joy is an emotion, but it ought not to be dictated to us by our circumstances or the way that we feel. As, As Ferguson again helpfully puts it, we have sometimes been misled into thinking of joy, just as we tend to think of love, as primarily a matter of feelings and spontaneous emotions. These, by definition, cannot be commanded. They simply happen. But that is a distortion of biblical teaching. So as Ferguson says, the common understanding of joy is that like love, it's simply something that happens to us. We fall in love. Joy overtakes us. But when we think about our relationship with God, we love, why? Because he first loved us. That's what 1 John 4.19 says. It's a statement of fact. God loves us, therefore we ought to love Him in response. But it's also saying that we are able to love Him because He first loved us. He made us able to love Him when we did not want to love Him. We had no desire to love the Lord, but He made us able to love Him. And so we do. And so our joy, like our love, it's founded upon an intellectual understanding of what God has done for us. It's also founded upon a supernatural change or transformation that the Holy Spirit has wrought in us. He made us capable of joy when He regenerated us. He brought us to life from spiritual death. And so we can refer to the passage at the top of the bulletins uh, this morning, Acts chapter 16, verse 34, which says, Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And as we said earlier, this, of course, is referring to the Philippian jailer. We read the, the, the story in Acts chapter 16 of the Philippian jailer at the beginning of our time in the book of Philippians. That's a, lot, a lot of time, many months have elapsed since then. But you remember the general Uh, details of the story that Paul and and Silas have been imprisoned Uh, the people in Philippi didn't like what they were doing Uh, they had uh, cast out a a spirit of divination uh, in this young girl and her handlers her her slave owners didn't like the fact that now they'd lost all this revenue and so they went after Paul and Silas and had them thrown in prison there was a great earthquake the jail doors were uh, thrown open by the earthquake and the jailer the Philippian jailer just knows that all of his prisoners have escaped and that the Roman uh, powers that be are going to put him to death and so he's about to take his own life and Paul calls out and, and tells him not to do such a thing you remember the Philippian jailer he's astounded that they didn't leave none of the prisoners left Paul and, and Silas had convinced all of the other inmates to, to stick around And what's his response to that? Sirs, how may I be saved? And Paul says to this Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And so what's his response when he believes? That's what we read there in Acts chapter 16, verse 34. He's rejoicing. He's throwing a party. He cooks this big meal, or maybe it's a Ms. Philippian jailer who does it, but he, he provides for him. He brings the apostles in. He's rejoicing because he has believed in God. When formerly he didn't, he was despairing of his own life. Now his life has been preserved. And he knows that it has happened because of the Lord. And so he rejoices. Rejoicing is the proper response of a person who has had the grace of God poured out upon him. And there ought, in an ideal world, there ought never to be a time where we stop rejoicing over that matter. 
But when we come to a, a sub-biblical understanding of what joy is, and we think it's just merely an emotion that sort of happens and then goes away, that's dependent upon our overall state of mind or feelings, then we, then we lose that ability. Or we think we have, perhaps, is a better way of putting it. If we're just standing by, waiting to be hit over the head with the impulse to rejoice, we might be waiting a long time. Our feelings, unlike the Lord, are, are whimsical and capricious. And it is a good thing that our joy isn't actually dictated by our feelings, but it's dictated by the knowledge that we have been saved from God's righteous wrath due to us because of our sins. We've been saved. So we can rejoice in the Lord always. In that passage that we read from Revelation chapter 19, the rejoicing that we read of there, it's based upon what? It's based upon the fact that the Lord our God Almighty reigns. He is sovereign in his rule over all creation, and that causes us to rejoice. But it's also based on the fact that the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has been made ready for him. And so those, those, those saints depicted in heaven, the, the, the believers who've gone on uh, before us, they're, they're depicted as rejoicing because of these things. What Paul is commanding the Philippians to do in chapter 4, verse 4 of Philippians is, is to rejoice in the Lord always, is to engage in kingdom of heaven behavior. To rejoice in the Lord always is what we will be doing for eternity when we go to be with the Lord. And Paul wants us to understand that we can have a taste of that right now. We don't have to wait until we enter into eternity in order to enjoy this ability to rejoice. That eternal rejoicing, just like our rejoicing while we're here on earth, it is based upon the fact of God's goodness to us in saving us from eternal punishment in the fires of hell. And so if you're, if you're struggling with rejoicing, and I, and I understand it, I do, I'm not unsympathetic to those who struggle. If you're in the midst of sorrow and you just can't seem to find the joy, what can you do? You've got to remind yourselves of what the Lord has done. When you're in sorrow, when you've gone through trauma, when you've experienced hardship, it's very easy to dwell on those things. You, your mind revisit, revisits those things unprompted. The death of a loved one, a serious illness or some kind of injury, or hurt that someone has done to you. It, it's so easy to to let your minds just go right back to those things. It comes unbidden. So you've got to do the work of reminding yourself what the Lord has done for you. And that's hard. It's, it is work. You've got to read God's Word. You've got to reflect on the, on the fact that you will be with Him for eternity. That this life, though it's significant to you, it is but a blip in light of eternity. This too shall pass. Joy will be eternal. Sorrow may tarry for a night or two, but it is not the permanent estate in which we will exist. 
In verse 5, Paul commands the Philippians, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, it's, it was hinted earlier uh, that the word translated reasonableness can also mean gentleness. Some of you may have that in a footnote in your Bibles. But it also can mean forbearance, clemency, graciousness, or courtesy, among, among other things. It's got, a, it's got a wide range of meaning, although all of these different definitions or, 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 or translations uh, are related, right? To be gracious to someone is to show courtesy to them. To be reasonable is, is to be gentle in our demeanor and the way that we conduct ourselves. And this word that's translated reasonableness, it's a compound word in the Greek. And the components of this compound word, the two words that make up the compound word for reasonableness are on or upon and yield. And so a variation of this word is used in Galatians chapter 2, verse 5, where Paul says, referring to those Judaizers who slipped in to spy out their freedom in Christ, he says, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. So the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. It's not, a, it's not identically the same word. It's a variation of the word. But you, but you get the, the understanding a little bit better. Here in Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, Paul is essentially now saying the opposite. Although he's not really, it sounds like he is. Don't be unyielding. Instead, let your yieldingness be known to everyone. But as we saw, the word means simply uh, more than simply to yield to others. And Paul is not saying, as he made very clear in uh, the book of Galatians, he is not saying that we are to yield on essential doctrines. That's not what Paul did in Galatia. He didn't yield an inch. He doesn't want us to yield an inch. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, Paul uses this word in reference to Jesus Christ. He says there, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness, there's that word, of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. He entreats them by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. And so this this gentleness that, that Paul commands, or this, this reasonableness that Paul commands the Philippians to have, it is nothing more than an attribute of the Lord. Why then are we to exude reasonableness, gentleness, so that all around us might see it? Why, why is this a command? Because it is an attribute of Jesus Christ, whose mind we are to have. If we would be like Jesus, then our lives would be marked with, with gentleness, reasonableness. I've got to say, as a, as, a, as a casual observer of evangelicalism in America today, that it is not marked by reasonableness nor by gentleness. I don't think we're doing a very good job of letting our reasonableness be known to everyone. We have delved headfirst into the screeching and cacophony of the wider culture. But interestingly, while we haven't yielded on certain things, we have yielded on essential doctrines. The wider evangelical world is struggling. They do not know what to do with the, 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 the culture of the world saying that homosexuality is okay. And so we find the wider evangelical world capitulating on these things. We see the wider evangelical world capitulating on the doctrine of the Trinity, an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. They don't know what to do with, with, with Muslims or with uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or with Mormons who uh, don't believe in the Trinity. And so they're giving in on it. It's, it's a, we, we find ourselves strangely giving in, yielding on these essential things. 
but becoming so riled up about matters that will fade away, that will, that will burn up when the Lord Jesus Christ judges this world. Now, any time that there is an imperative, a command in Scripture, or a series of commands, like we have it here in this passage in Philippians this morning, we should expect to see a fact about God or about what He has done for us in close proximity to that command. It's not always not an infallible rule as you read through Scripture, but very often, most oftentimes, when you read through Scripture, if you see a command, then there's a statement of fact about what the Lord has done. When God gave the Ten Commandments to Israel, we read these Ten Commandments every month, and, and, and we read them, uh, and we read the, the preamble or the preface to the Ten Commandments, to those imperatives, uh, which is a statement of fact. Before we get to the commands, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. And then he says, You shall not. You shall not. You shall not. The statement of fact, the indicative, is another way of talking about it. It provides the grounds for why we ought to obey. Why should you listen to these commands? Because God has done this for you. Now God could simply have told the Israelites that they had to obey Him because He is God and they are His creatures. He could have done that. He has the right to tell us to obey based on that fact alone. But he reminds them of the fact that he saved them from slavery. More than being their creator, he, he, he's their redeemer. And especially for the, that reason, they ought to obey him in these ways. Because of that, they ought to obey him. So Paul does the same thing here. So far we've encountered two of his commands. And now sandwiched between uh, the four commands, in the middle of the four commands, he gives this indicative, this statement of fact. The Lord is at hand. Why should we rejoice? Why should we uh, let our reasonableness be known to everyone? Why should we not be anxious about anything? Why should we pray to God? Because the Lord is at hand. And when Paul tells us that the Lord is at hand, he might mean that Christ's return is imminent, that it's right around the corner. And, and there, there are passages in Paul's letters that indicate that he, he, he maybe didn't believe that Christ was going to come back at any moment or within his lifetime, but that he hoped he would. Well, that's, that's the hope of all believers, isn't it? We want the Lord to return. And so it may be that that's what Paul is talking about. The Lord is at hand. The Lord's return is near. So do these things. But Paul might be referring to the nearness of the Lord in a different sense. Psalm 34, verses 18 and 19 says this, Yahweh is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but Yahweh delivers, them out of, de delivers him out of them all. He's near to those who are brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. So yes, the return of Christ is imminent as far as we are concerned. We don't know the day or the hour, so we have to live like it can happen at any time, just like Paul did. But Christ is also imminent. He's close to us. He is Emmanuel, the God who is with us. 
And as Psalm 34 indicates, he is close to us in a special way. He's close in a special way to the brokenhearted, to those who are crushed in spirit, which in reality, every Christian ought to be. Our sin ought to crush us. Not not falling into some sort of hopeless despair, but it ought to grieve us far more than it does. We become so, so... Inured, our, our, our conscience has come, become so cauterized by our sin that we, sometimes we get to a point in life where we barely feel it. We barely sense it. We, we don't hate it the way that we... It doesn't grieve us the way that it ought. We should be brokenhearted over our sin. We should be crushed in spirit as we see the effects of the curse on this fallen world. But the Lord is near Therefore, rejoice. Let your, under, let your reasonableness be known to all, but also don't be anxious about anything. Pray about everything. The Lord is near. Now, it may seem that Paul is just giving another unrelated command, kind of like a maxim when he says uh, in verse 6, the second half of verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. <clears throat> there is a connection between his, this command and what Paul says in the previous two verses. Joy in the Lord, as you probably are aware, it has the effect of negating anxiety. The ability to rejoice resides in the fact that God is sovereign and in the fact that His steadfast love endures forever. These facts also have an impact on our level of anxiousness. If you're anxious about something, but then you remind yourself that God is sovereign. You go to those great passages of Scripture that talk about the ways in which He will uphold His people. Romans 8 being one prime example. And it brings you joy, but it also helps to ease your anxiety, your worries. And so these facts, they have an impact on the level of our, our anxiousness. But at this point, we've got to be very careful. I know that we're treading, and I want to tread very lightly here. Because there, there are people here. There are some of, of you who who suffer from extreme forms of anxiety, you've been diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. You have, you have friends or, or family members who, who suffer from this. Nothing in what I'm about to say should be taken as me telling those who suffer from an anxiety disorder that you simply need to pray more. You, you need to believe better. Your faith is weak. It's not what I'm saying. <coughs> Anxiety disorders are the result of brain chemistry that is out of balance. And oftentimes medication is prescribed that works to restore the balance in brain chemistry. I'm not a, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. I've read a lot on this. I've tried to understand it. But I, I'm by no means an expert. But I have witnessed, I've, been, I've witnessed the effects of, of an imbalance in brain chemistry. I had a, one of my best friends in college who I roomed with for about a year. He, he suffered from an extreme form of... of uh, of, of obsessive compulsive disorder. And, and if you're familiar with that, then you, then you know that OCD is also often accompanied by, by anxiety. It, it's, OCD is the desire to control things that you feel like you can't control. And so there's a lot of anxiety because there's so much in this world that we have no control over. And, and so my friend, when we roomed together, at, at night, when, when he would be trying to go to bed, I would ha he would ask me, he would beg me. I, it was very frustrating at times. I was not always a good friend. He would beg me to go around the entire apartment and get every small appliance, toaster ovens, uh, 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 hair dryers, 
uh, electric toothbrushes, whatever it was that might be plugged into a wall. I had to unplug those things, wrap the cord around them, bring them to his side of the bed and put them on the floor so that he could know that these things weren't going to spontaneously erupt into flames. He could not sleep otherwise. He wouldn't sleep under a, a light fixture like this or a ceiling fan because he was afraid that they might come crashing down upon his head. The, the faucets in the shower were nearly twisted off because he would turn them off so tightly because he was afraid that if he didn't make sure there was not a leak of water that the house might flood. And so I, I, I can't say that I suffer from, uh, from an anxiety. To, I, I understand what it means to be anxious, to be worried, but I, I'm not trying to claim or make you think that I, I have an anxiety disorder, but, I, but I'm very sensitive to those who do. I also know this. I work for an explosives company, as you, as you know. One of the things you might not know, among many other interesting places that I, that I went to work, I went to work in a, in a, in a mine or a quarry where we would, we would mine lithium. And this lithium mine uh, was shut down. I would go two or three times a week um, during a part of my time working for this company. And, and eventually the lithium mine was shut down. They, they were able to... Um, they found a dry lake bed somewhere in South America where there was just lithium power, powder laying on the surface and they could just dredge it up and they could refine it and turn it into batteries, uh, turn it, you know, all the lithium ion devices you have, but also lithium uh, medication, which is helpful in bipolar disorder. Well, those, thankfully, I wasn't there. I didn't work enough in the mine to, to be affected by this, but those workers who worked in the mine every day, when they shut the mine down, they had to put those, those men who worked in that mine, they had to put them on lithium and then gradually weed, wean them from it. Because if not, they were going to sink into this, their, their brain chemistry was going to be all out of whack. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And so, again, I've said a lot to say. I want to tread lightly on this. If you're suffering from anxiety disorder, I'm not telling you that it's a sin for you to have these anxieties. That doesn't mean that you're free from sin. It doesn't mean that, that your anxieties might you know, not result in you sinning in some way or other. But what Paul is talking about here is a different kind of anxiety. He's not talking about brain chemistry anxiety here. Um, Paul is, is talking uh, about the kind of anxiety that is hopeless stress and anxiety over the things of the world. He's referring to anxiety or worry over the general cares of life, which we all experience. We understand. Some of you are experiencing that right now. You don't know about your job uh, your work, you, you don't know about the health of a loved one, you're very worried about it. You're, you may be very worried about your children and, and, and the kind of world that they're going to grow up in or the kind of influences that, that they may come under. You may be worried about how you're going to get food on the table for your family. And those, Paul is not saying that those are bad worries that you... That you uh, he's not saying that you're wrong for feeling a concern over those things, but what he is saying is that you, you can't think that you're going to fix these things by worrying about them. By falling into this habit of just turning these worries over and over in your head to the point where you are immobilized, you're paralyzed with fear over these things. Now, this is the kind of worry that comes about as, the, as a result of being too earthly-minded. 
It's something we've explored in previous sermons. But an earthly mindedness causes us to lose sight of the fact that God is in control. And he is bringing all things to its foreordained conclusion. Now, the word that's translated anxious in verse 6, it's used variously in the New Testament. Jesus uses this word in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, when he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And Jesus uses it again when he explains the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, 22. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. That word cares, that's the word for anxiety or anxious in our passage. Paul uses this word in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 32 to 34, where he says in part, I want you to be free from anxieties. And then he goes on to talk about how the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things and how to please his wife. There are plenty of things in this life, in this world, to worry about. It's not saying that those are illegitimate things to have concerns about. But Paul is commanding us not to be anxious about these things, not to, not to dwell on these things in a, in a perpetual state. He's talking about a, a perpetual state of worry over these matters. And the remedy that he proposes, the remedy that he gives is found in the second half of verse 6. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Instead of worrying, being anxious... And leaving it there, in some ways thinking that that's enough, that's all we need to do is just worry about it. Paul is commanding us to lay the things that are burdens to us, our worries and our cares, he's commanding us to lay them at the feet of the Lord. And the way that we do this is through prayer. Not through worrying about it. Now this may mean that you pray a lot. But is that a bad thing? <laughs> it may mean that you wake up in the middle of the night and, and as soon as you wake up, your mind is flooded with worries. And then immediately, your, your rational mind kicks in and you start to pray. I know that for many of you, that's what you do. You've told me. And if you don't do that, when the worries flood in, then you need to be. We offer up our concerns, our cares to the Lord. We entrust them to Him, knowing that He can actually do something about those things that so worry us. As Jesus said in Matthew 6, we can't add even a single hour to the span of our lives by worrying about things. Instead, the Lord offers to bear our burdens on His shoulders, to carry the great weight that threatens to crush us. Well, in verse 6, Paul uses three different words for prayer. Prayer, supplication, and requests. These are all to be done, as he says, with thanksgiving. And the three terms for prayer, they're, they're pretty much synonymous. You don't need to put a lot of weight on the differences of terms. He's using these three terms to emphasize the importance of prayer. He wants it to sink in with great gravity how important prayer is, how, how, how wonderful prayer is, what a great privilege prayer is. And in verse 7, Paul says that in so doing, 
He says, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, I know that I've quoted Sinclair Ferguson a lot, probably too much in today's sermon. I love Dr. Ferguson, and I love the way he puts it here. He says, Paul speaks about this peace as though it were a military garrison, an apt picture for Christians in Philippi, which itself was constantly guarded by a garrison of Roman soldiers. The peace that passes all understanding, it, it, is, it is like a military defense that surrounds your heart. It's a peace that guards you. But while Roman soldiers might have been seen as a threat by some of the citizens of Philippi, the peace of God which guards our hearts and minds is no threat at all to us. But Paul says effectively that the peace of God is ultimately a mystery. He says it surpasses all understanding. It goes against what our senses might be telling us. Our circumstances are such that they may be telling us we ought to be worried. If they're telling us that the world is falling apart, if our senses are telling us, our mind is telling us that we're never going to make it financially. Now, in one sense, we all truly have reasons to be anxious. The world is full of sorrows, full of troubles. Even the things on earth in which we place so much stock, they can crumble before our eyes. How is it that we can have the possibility of peace? Well, for one thing, it's because we have a God to whom we can pray. And he isn't like the idols we manufacture with our hands or with our minds. He can actually do something about the things that concern us. God is not deaf or dumb or blind like those little gods that people make out of sticks or stones. He can hear us. He sees our plight and he can answer us. And what's more, he is almighty God. He can do something about the troubles and the sorrows and the travails in which we find ourselves. And he is willing to do those things. Even though he is holy in every way, even though he hates sin, even our sin was not enough to keep him from drawing near to us. In fact, it was precisely because of our sin that he has come close to us in the person of Jesus Christ. If God not only was able, but also willing to save sinners from his well-deserved fiery wrath, then he can save us from anything. Because ultimately, for all of creation, and especially human beings who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the one thing they will not escape. But if you believe in him, then you have been saved from that. And if you've been saved from that, you can be saved from anything. There's nothing that is worse than that from which you have already been saved. Again, if God the Father was willing not to spare His only begotten Son in order to save people who hated Him, then He will not allow anything in this life to undo you. He will guard you with His peace. And what's more, this circles back to those original early questions in the sermon. You might remember those, you might not. It may seem like a vague uh, memory to you by now. But he does not command you to do anything that you can't do through the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. And so in actuality, though you do fail, you, you can fail, we often fail, you actually can be obedient to these four commands that Paul gives. 
You can. You can rejoice always. You can let your reasonableness be known to everyone. You can not be anxious about anything. You can pray to the Lord in all things. God does not command you to do things that He has not given you the ability to do. Now, you can't do them by yourself. The unregenerate person, the the reprobate, can't do these things, but you can. Why? Because you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. You have been given His Holy Spirit. He empowers you to do things that you formerly could not do. That doesn't mean that you will always do these things without fail. It does mean that you can do these things. You're capable of it because the Holy Spirit is doing them through you. But when you fail, and you will, when you're disobedient, and you will be disobedient, and these commands that we've seen in this passage or all the other commands that God has given to us, remember this, you have a Savior who never failed in any way to keep the commandments of God. Not one. Not a jot or a tittle that he violated of God's word. Never once. And here's the good news. Jesus Christ's record of obeying God's law has been counted as your own if you trust in him. When you fail to be obedient to these commands or any other in Scripture, what does your Father in Heaven see? He sees the perfect obedience of His Son. It's been counted as your own. It is yours. It belongs to you now. It can never, ever be taken away. That's good news, brothers and sisters. Because of that good news, you ought to rejoice in the Lord, always. You ought to let your reasonableness reasonableness be known to everyone. You ought not to be anxious. You ought to offer up your prayers, your supplications, your petitions to the Lord. Out of gratitude for what Jesus Christ has done, He has given you these oughts. But he's given you even more. He's given you the desire, but also the power through the Holy Spirit to keep these commands. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, so often in this life as Christians, we do feel like failures. We are very aware of the ways in which we've been disobedient. We carry great guilt, and that guilt seems to multiply. Lord, we thank you that your word is what gives us hope. It gives us hope because it tells us about Jesus Christ. It tells us about who he is and what he has done. And this gives us joy. We pray, dear Lord, that when we are lacking in joy when we are unreasonable when we are anxious 
when we are failing to pray to you as we ought, we pray, O Lord, that you would remind us of these things. But we pray also, Lord, that we might be diligent in reminding ourselves through the various means of grace that you've provided to us, your word, the sacraments, and through prayer. We pray, dear Lord, that we would be diligent in our spiritual disciplines. We pray that you would help us to call to mind all of the good and wonderful things that you have done for us. That you'd help us to call to mind all of the good good and wonderful things that you are. We thank you, dear Lord, that you have been so good to us. We pray that you would help us to be grateful. And that out of gratitude, you would help us to be obedient. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.